Mimic plays and obscene jests, matters most material, for nuns and priests, who would have guessed their joy in the house of revels? Welcome back to House of Revels, the Theatre Through the Ages podcast. I'm Mingma. And I'm Olivia. And we are theatre practitioners taking you on a journey through the history of theatre in Britain. From naught to now. Each episode we discuss a different theatre style, its context, origin and form, and then we score said theatre style in four different categories. Finally, we decide whether this style deserves to join the illustrious House of Revels, the great and noble hall for only the best of British theatre. In this episode, we are discussing Terence staging. Woo! Not the staging of Terence Rattigan. The staging of Terence, our famous Roman playwright. So Terence was a Roman playwright. He wrote six comedies. We picked upon him a little bit in our Anglo-Saxon episode. He influenced this um, German nun called Grossfitha. And Terence died quite young, aged either 25 or 35. He's one of three surviving Roman playwrights we have. Um, and his work, as I think we're going to start seeing now was hugely influential. It kind of, he had a bit of a renaissance and he kind of wrote some work and then it was discovered later and brought up. And I think that's what we're gonna to start to be talking about this episode. So much to our, well, much to my surprise, cause uh, is that mm. as Liv mentioned in Roman theater, um, Terence was influential. I went, yeah, whatever. Actually, no, he actually, all of his plays were staged in a very specific and different form in this time and also actually a lot of people wrote plays in the style of what they thought Terence was performing in it's all very odd but we'll Mm. get into it just quickly we talked about how like this current time period is one of the only time periods we have which isn't heavily influenced by Terence like he was hugely influential and it's only now we're living in a uh, in a world where we don't really know about him if that makes sense Mm. anyway context here we discuss the current day events as this form developed what else was going on in history what economic social political movements might affect performance performances we're effectively skipping a hundred years since our last episode okay so uh last episode was 1066 roughly mm-hmm. um and this is really the mi- the middle of the 12th century so that's the 1150s if i know my maths and all the yeah dates two centuries <laughs> yes 1150s yeah. um so just to give a quick update on on england as such uh i was researching this again yesterday just to make sure and it's wild I just like in terms of dynasty, Game of Thrones says nothing on what happened during this period, <laughs> which is to give a basic idea is that uh, William the Conqueror conquered and he wasn't particularly happy in England. <laughs> he, he was very much a dictator. He was never very much a ruler who loved his people. And so as much time as he could, he spent in Normandy and actually his wife quite often ruled England. So that's quite a cool little feminist thing. Um, so he, she, he left her in charge and her name was Matilda of Flanders. There's a lot of Matildas in this story. They had four sons. They had uh, Richard, they had Robert, William, Rufus, and Henry. Of those sons, Richard died in a hunting accident young. And when William the Conqueror died, he split his kingdom. So there's a whole thing at this time of how do you succeed? How do you kind of split up everything? Do you go the primogeniture route, which is the elder son gets everything, which is the main Mm -hmm. law in the UK? Uh, Or do you go the more European uh, way of Charlemagne at this time, which is you divide all the lands equally? And William effectively went down kind of like a halfway house of both it's odd he left his eldest son robert uh normandy his inherited lands and and remembering normandy is much bigger than normandy nowadays and he Mm. left his second son william rufus and all the lands associated with that and his uh richard has died at this point so he left his final son henry basically five thousand (laughs) pounds so oh um yeah burn but 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 henry wasn't having it particularly not surprised there was also a whole succession thing because uh because Robert in Normandy also wasn't really having it, but William Rufus got crowned incredibly fast. So he does become William II. He's the one who died out hunting, as the wonderful Horrible History song says. Died out hunting, so it said. <laughs> Arctic over, Henry won. 
That's my next eldest son. I need to watch <laughs> horrible histories because I feel like it's just so many reference to it, references to it in my daily life and have never seen it. And I'm just like, yes, that thing that everyone loves. <laughs> you just need to watch that song. That song and the Charles II rap, I think. And then, and then we're covered. Fair enough. So war about succession, etc., etc. Basically what happened is that Robert is trying to um, take over from William Rufus because he says, I, in my succession thing, I should have got all the lands, not just half of them. William Rufus is going, yeah, you what, mate? They're both messing around their youngest brother, uh, Henry. Mm. Henry bought some land from Robert and then they um, deposed him and then it was all a bit weird. And in the end, William Rufus, crowned King of England, died in a hunting accident with massive double quotes here on which his younger brother Henry is on and Henry trots off to Winchester incredibly fast and gets crowned king before Robert, who's living in Normandy, has any idea what's happened. This is so Game of Thronesy, but not quite. Yeah. But also... Hmm. 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 Lots of hunting accidents happening hunting, around hunting here. Hunting accidents, yes. There's an awful lot of that stuff. Uh, so then there's another war. Uh, between Robert trying to invade England and, and Henry I uh, rebuffing him. And then Henry I has two children. He has Matilda and he has William. And that he takes the throne in 1100. So we're... Basically, I'm, I'm bringing you in the history up until about 1140 for this for this theatre style to get there. So this, so this okay. is where we are. Other thing to mention about Henry I is he's a bit of a despot. However, he also was raised in England. His elder two brothers were very much born and bred in Normandy, whereas the younger two and their sister were it's likely that he was born in Yorkshire and it's likely that he um that he studied and grew up in Salisbury very close to yours truly very close to me have to bring have to put it in there so it's likely he studied under the archbishop of Salisbury archbishop so he's very much got this english connection yes and so you could argue in his favour that unlike his brothers who very much saw it as a vassal state, he might have thought of himself as English in a way that his elder French-speaking brothers would have less so. So that's interesting. But uh, And he also, when he ma- when he becomes Henry I, he marries Matilda of Scotland, second Matilda of the story. <laughs> and um, so again, he's very much trying to do this thing about nationhood and about England rather than bringing onto the continent. However, obviously he still is Norman. But it's an interesting dynamic there. Anyway, two children, this elder boy and Matilda. Uh, the elder boy dies in the White Ship disaster, which is when a shipload of all the best nobles were doing a classic channel crossing from Normandy back to England in about 1120, I think it is. And the ship breaks up and the crown prince dies. Oh gosh. And along with so many nobles. Basically it was the party ship. It was the party I mean, ship of all of them. <laughs> why would you put everyone on one boat? I don't really... Well, I guess it's just risks they were taking, but I mean... Yeah. Who knows? It, it is, yeah. It's one of those weird things, but then again... I mean, who? it might have been... A fr- I think it was a freak storm. It was some kind of weird thing okay. or perhaps the boat, you know, something went wrong, but one of those kind of awful It wasn't disasters. a deliberate... Like, it wasn't an attack type thing. Okay. No, it was absolutely a disaster. Um, and so then there's no air for England. And so um, Henry I tries desperately to get another wife on board uh, to try and get some more sons. That doesn't work. And so in the end, he caves and names Matilda his heir. His, his daughter. Okay. However, when he finally dies, Matilda is also called the Empress Matilda because she married the man who was the Emperor of Europe who took over from Charlemagne. So she's also badass. When he dies, his nephew usurps, called Stephen. So we have Stephen and Matilda, if you've heard that story before. I have heard of Stephen. So they start a period of wars called the Anarchy, where it's a war of succession. Fun fact, Stephen should have been on the white ship, except he had dysentery. And so he had the shits and so had to get off. Before it left. I mean, yay, but nay. But also, Stephen is. So, who is Stephen's father? I think that Stephen is the son of their sister. I think that's how it works. His mo- yes, his mother was Adela, who is the daughter of William the Conqueror. Who was so? It's a maternal link. Okay. And so again, it's the problem of the woman succession. Do you want a man as a throne, but through a female line, or do you want the paternal line, but it's a woman who's taking Mm. over? It was also a problem, to be fair, and I, you know, you want to go kind of freedom for and all this kind of stuff. Matilda had spent most of her life in Europe by this point at the court of, uh, used to be the court of Charlemagne. Stephen yeah. did know England. Anyway, so in the end, the anarchy is resolved. Uh, Matilda very, very nearly takes over, but she does, uh, she does not succeed, mostly because of the city of London, another story, but not for this podcast. Eventually it is agreed that her son will succeed Stephen upon his death. And does that actually happen or is there some Stephen? That happens. Okay, that does happen. Okay. So her son is called Henry II 
Henry II marries Eleanor of Aquitaine. Okay. His children are Richard the Lionheart, uh, King John, and that lot. Right, I'm with you. So, so that's where we are. And so to explain all of that is mostly to say that England was a state of turmoil for at least 70 years. So there was there was complete despot. There was war after war after war of succession. I think as we've been noticing throughout this, culture doesn't thrive <laughs> when you're in the middle of turmoil. No. Um, and so I think that's a main reason to think that why there isn't that much new theatre, new stuff going on at this time. I'm sure they're still telling the old stories, the old, you know, all the old things we have talked about before, but nothing particularly new appeared. Okay. Um, so that brings us up to the court of Henry II and probably the end of Stephen as well. So when everything was settled about how it was going to continue. Okay, so we are in the origins of Terence staging then. So in this section, we discuss the origins of the theatre style. We trace its beginnings and what influenced its development. We can also talk about stuff happening in other countries because this is often relevant. So in this time, in the kind of the 12th century, there is this enormous renaissance. There's a thing of everyone slightly calming down and the temperature got much warmer. And there was this enormous burgeoning of philosophy and culture. And, you know, we think about the renaissance nowadays. Uh, There was an earlier renaissance. And actually, if you kind of begin to look at a very grand idea of history, there does seem to be this interesting kind of 200 year, 300 year arc in terms of culture and in terms of how things moved. Mm -hmm. I'm mentioning this again because of the rediscovery of classical works and beginning to look at it and looking at works of effectively pagan writers, but in a form of looking of understanding God and looking at the idea of bodies of Christ and of, you know, it was this big kind of thing of religious thought. I think the best way to describe bishops and this kind of stuff in modern day context is imagine they're almost like for us Buddhist monks in terms of they would have their faith would also be men of great learning. So they wouldn't be there trying to convert you in a complete form, but they would have been taught all of the things and they would be looking at it within understanding, within context, this idea of being very much part of the community while also having their faith. It wasn't all kind of condemn and sin and convert. There was very much a a literary idea of how should we interpret this and what should come in, what shouldn't, all this kind of stuff. That's mostly summed up by the wandering scholars, which are um, men of learning men of religion who wander, literally, especially around Europe. But they are going around and they are helping with thought. They go and learn more. They go between different courts. And so again, we have this massive push for education and and learning. And in particular, the beginning and rediscovery of all of the Roman plays. So one of the origins is the fact that suddenly all the monasteries, because they're again, no more war, people could move between them and suddenly go, oh, look at this Latin text. I actually speak Latin. I can look at that. And actually I can see there's another one over here, which seems to be by the same Mm. author. And you begin to have conversations and remembering no internet, seeing, you know, and you would only know what's in everyone's archives depending on um, who's been and seen them and can tell the differences and can see It's like if you give people, if you give them the space and the time, they can take it much slower and go, oh, I'll go and see these and connect these. And rather than, I guess, the pressures of war of not so much mingling and no more mingling. <laughs> not so much mingling. We know all yeah. about that, don't we? Yes. So there's, all, so there's all this kind of movement. And also, as with the time which we normally call the Renaissance, there is a move towards literary drama. You know, there, there, is a, there is a beginning of a distinction between the really religious and also let's look at more thought. I heard someone once describe religion as salt. You know, it spices up your life, but it doesn't need to be completely all-encompassing. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it was a reverend and he just said, yeah. He loves the analogy of saying um, that on its own, salt tastes mm. completely overpowering. But once you add it to a meal, it actually enhances everything. So that's his way of saying, this, this is what religion can do. I'm bringing it into here because I think this is very much the attitude of these mm. people at this time that in general the monks and the nuns and the monasteries and the work they were doing was very much because we are part of the church we very much believe we we do have our beliefs but also we are Mm. educating and we have the time and the space to be able to work on all this i've also remembering that all the viking raids have basically stopped now whereas before for about 300 years you were having wondering whether a viking longship was going to come and decapitate fair enough yeah (laughs) you know and and burn all your books which they did a lot Latin liturgical drama moved towards more secular literary drama. Remembering also that in England, we are now much more keyed into Europe than we were before. We are part of a bigger empire of the Normans and of of this great thing. And so the influences which are happening on the European continent are going to be much more relevant. No, that makes sense. And also because we've moved into uh, the language of court being Norman, French and Latin, I'm guessing there's going to be a greater understanding of European texts and things if we now have got more Latin going around, or is that 
No, that's a complete. That's a really good point, which I'd forgotten. I I didn't think to mention to make. Bing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, that exactly. That um, nowadays that the uh, English was for peasants, and the language of court was French, and the language of law and of the mm. church was Latin, and language of learning as well, Latin. They always seem to use Latin in it. Interestingly, also Newton. When we kind of go through into the next Renaissance, uh, all of the scientists seem to have this weird classist idea that they wanted to keep their um, their ideas higher and so they'd write in Latin. I mean, I guess also Latin has been, I guess that, but also I wonder if it's because it's been a prevailing language. So, I mean, it's ironic now that we don't really speak it anymore, but the idea of actually Latin has been around for so long that I wonder if they were like, ah, my ideas will be preserved if I write in Latin. Yeah, you're bang on. That's much more generous. <laughs> Rather than they're just snobs who wanted to write in a really difficult way. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit like the chemical symbols yeah. table. Uh, suddenly anyone from any language will always be able to read everyone's yeah. texts. Right, so that's another origin. And then we're on to good old from our Norman friends, because remember, well, Viking, Viking, Norman, Norman, English, all that yeah. thing, which we've done a bit um, <laughs> in our previous episodes, elegiac poetry, which is wisdom poetry. So it's kind of telling these great stories, you know, in courts, all the rest of it, morals. How do we tell morals? Oh, let's bring in the Christian message into these stories, you know, parables, all that fun stuff. That's been a prevailing thing for the last Mm. thousand years, as we've been saying. That's going to be influencing the way they tell these plays as well. And the final part of Origins is Terence, as as we said, Terence and Hrothvitha. So Hrothvitha, Liv, help me out. Hrothvitha. Hrothvitha, there we go. (laughs) Was the first person to rediscover and stage Terence plays and also write her own but she was the one who was really kind of pushing this I think she's slightly earlier than the date we're talking about now which is a particular thing in England or of a different way of doing it slightly okay so it's in plays the main features of the theatre style so Mi'kmaq what is Terence staging give it to us Woo! all right so Terence staging is effectively a mistranslation of what they thought was going on in Terence plays <laughs> okay <laughs> Which I think is just a great kind of bonkers thing that they read these and go, oh, well, they were clearly plays and we think they were played like this. And actually, they weren't. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then again, we get new theatre style in a new episode. So yay! yay. <laughs> in Terence plays, there is a narrator and there is a story. The main point is that there's one person who says all the action and everyone else is miming it in the background. Okay. That is the defining feature of Terence. But the other big thing is that the scenes occupy a definite location. So in the staging and in the plays we still have, they say we are now in a house. We have scene changes. We are in a house. We are in a mansion. We are in a forest. Whereas before, if stories were told, you were, it was part, you know, it was much more verse-like and poetry. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is the first time we're really seeing a stage as such. Okay. In general, the Terentian... I think that's how we kind of say it. Narrator narrates while action is mined out by players. And often the narrator is a noble and the players are the actors. So it's clearly some bloke who hasn't got enough to do and really wants to be on stage. He wants to be the actor. And so he takes on this this piece so he can perform to all of his mates, which I just think is amazing. Most of what we discover about uh, Terence stages and this kind of thing is from as normal people saying these awful things. And so there is a great quote of scurrilia et mimica, which is obscene jests, so scurrility and mime. So obscene jests and the mimic antics. And this was used to criticise the Emperor Bruno's brother for taking part in this kind of stuff. Okay. So there's clearly a bit of snobbery around why on earth would you be standing on stage and doing this kind of stuff. But it seems to be popular and seems to have appealed to uh, most classes and particularly the clerical classes. So again, Throsvitha, I can tell that she's very much a key figure in this mm-hmm. and then everything came out from her. Remembering as well, as we said, that England is now much more keyed into Europe. So Walter Mapp, who's a member of the entourage of Henry II, back on Henry II, 1150s, related that his clerks would often spend the evenings play-acting or making jokes to take the weight off their minds. Okay. So play acting. And so clearly this is also part of um, how to spend cold evenings. Mm. Another little kind of fun fact around all of this is that the Latin comedies were the most likely to be rewritten and readapted, as we talked about with um, Hrothsvitha, that she would change things. Uh, The most popular of these Latin comedies to be adapted was called Pamphilius, which gives us the modern word for pamphlet. Oh. It was so often redone and moved to another city so people can see them playing it. It was literally the pamphlet. A pamphlet. That is quite fun. Oh. Yeah. I thought that was a really kind of cute thing. 
Is it a good play, Pamphilius? Is it a is it a good one? It's one of those ones where I suppose it was good in its time. <laughs> you Harsh know, critique. It's a bit like, I mean, yeah, scand- scandalous here. But I, I watch a lot of the Greek ones and I can appreciate it very literary of going, oh, now I understand this and that and they're doing his mm. here. But do I really think that Oedipus is a good play? Yeah. You have to be, I think. I was listening to mm. um director... And he was talking about this idea of that we're in completely we're completely different audiences, and the things that were going through the heads of people in the 11th century or the 17th century are not the things going through our heads now. No, I mean I I totally agree with him, but that's a you know. So it, it is always a question about we are very clearly different audiences. So how do you tra- how do you transfer that, and how and how do you make allowances, or do you make allowances? It's a, it's a huge question, mm-hmm. and in my mind, it's you need to do a heck of a lot of research into what the playwright at that time was saying and then work out how to say that to the audience which you have now which might be in a very different way to the way they yeah and or or if you if you even want to say the same thing like what why was the person originally writing it saying that thing if that makes sense like what was their cause anyway that you can anyway we're just going on a tangent now a fun tangent though because we're theater makers and this is a theater part Anyway, back on track. So pamphlet, we have this pamphilius is where we get the word pamphlet from. Yes. And again, I think that tells you just how common these kind of mm. plays were. So the final point is that I've said that most of the of the Terence staging was this thing of one guy saying something and the other person uh, behind miming it all out. However, there is clear dialogue in them as well. Okay. We'd have these moments where there are split shared lines, which tells the actors where to continue the meter from the person before and this kind of stuff, which is clearly shows that this was intended to be um, uh, for more than one speaker. I'm with you. So it is actually a play. We're we're into something where we don't even need to entirely justify why we're doing this in the theatre podcast. It's a play. We've got scenes, we've got actors, we've got action in the plays. It's all there. The example I'm going to use for this is Babio, which is possibly authored by Walter Mapp who's the guy I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier as being part of the, the course of Henry II. The guy who was play-acting and making jokes to pass the evening. Yeah, that's the boy. Um, and it is written in the mid-12th century, so really about 1150, and it's written okay. in English. So again, that's fascinating, because if we're talking about this being a, a thing mm-hmm. of language of learning and so-and-so, why yeah, is it written and these in Lat- English? These Latin plays, why... Yeah. To me, that just says popular. That clearly it was popular enough that someone either translated it or thought it was better to write in English so that the people would enjoy perhaps, it more. Or... Perhaps. Either way popular because it, English wasn't the language of courts. Mm. Okay, so what is Babio then? What is it about? Alright, so the play Babio opens with uh, the aforementioned Babio, who is a small householder trying to declare lordly love for his stepdaughter, Viola, who is also loved by the local lord, Crocius. So you've got a nice little kind of very odd incestuous love I was gonna love say, that beginning sentence is a strong... Strong opener for tragedy <laughs> and comedy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, both. Let's see where we go. Um, Viola despises Babio, but pretends that she likes him and swears for de- fidelity and loyalty. Meanwhile, uh, Babio's wife, Petula, and servant Fodius are having an affair and would like Viola to stop spying okay. on them. Okay. So I think we can see the beginning of the kind of the, the, the physical comedy. Remember mm. that most of this was mimed. So we can definitely see how some of this is going to be going on. So we've got, yeah, so we've got Viola, who is loved by Babio and Crocius, and Babio's wife is having an affair with the servant. Yeah. Crocius sweeps a happy Viola away and marries her, and the disappointed Babio then swears eternal loyalty to his wife because he has sinned and God forbid and all that fun stuff who he declares to be as chaste as Penelope. And remembering all the kind of Greek stuff, Penelope is Odysseus's wife, who waited 20 years, taking uh, the foisting the away. Like, she um, was in an island, wasn't she? And she yes. would weave every day and every night. And she said she would only marry one of the suitors on the island when her weaving was complete. And so every day she would weave, and then yeah. every night she would unweave everything. Yes, exactly yeah. that, yeah. So, uh, yes. So, my wife is chased as Penelope. You can just see in the miming, someone's having, you know, shagging <laughs> behind yeah. him as he says it. Um, he then finds out about the affair. The remainder of the plot involves him attempting to stop the affair through clever ruses that continually go wrong, including pretending to attend the orgies of Bacchus. Bacchus got a parties from Greeks. He says, I'm going to go out and see the, or- you know, go to the orgies of Bacchus. Ho, 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 before sneaking back and spying on the lovers. And um, Phodius 
knows it's him, but takes him for a peeping Tom and so thrashes him soundly and castrates him. Okay. Yes, so fun. That, yeah. that took a turn. Babio then admits defeat and resolves to end his useless days in the monastery, leaving the lovers to live happily ever after at his house. I mean... The end. Okay. Like... I was not expecting that turn, to be honest, Mingma. What is this play trying to communicate? Like, it's wrong to spy on people who are having... What is... He falls in love with his stepdaughter, (laughs) who's... Which is a little bit creepy. And then Mm -hmm. his wife's lover castrates him after he spies on them. I mean, I kind of... Hmm. 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 Uh... Um, I think we need to take it very much as as Walter Mapp says, um, evenings play acting or making jokes take the weight off their minds. I think there is very much a let's just yeah. do something bonkers. It's funny because I know that in Shakespeare's time as well, there was this whole thing of what is the moral message? And I'm sure they all made up a moral mm. message every time they wanted to perform it uh, to say why they're doing it. But you can just see that actually this is just fun. It's funny. Why it, it, To me, it actually speaks very much of um, mm. the Greek comedies. Like, what the hell's going on in most of them? Let's just go straight in. (laughs) I think, when I think about that, the reason I say Greek as well is you know that in kind of Greek comedies, basically part of the costume is just this enormous dick, which is kind of like strapped on and just kind of waves waves in the wind. I can just see that that's part of the mime. (laughs) You know, that you just take that off and it's like, oh, well, that's done. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's kind of, it's a weird one. There's, we have this whole thing with Throsvitha as well, that supposedly Mm. it's a literary exercise. And actually, there's no absolute evidence that this was ever performed, that Babio was ever performed, or any of, it, of its contemporaries. However, there is literally a performing dog written into the stage okay. directions for it. <laughs> so why on earth would you put in that kind of detail into a script if... Hmm. Sorry, reading play, if it was not intended for performance? Yeah, why would you have it... You well, know, it's may- kind of- but maybe I would argue that actually, because they knew it wasn't going to be for performance, they were like, let's just put a dog in. I mean, that's not a very fun argument to make. I could also just see them saying, oh, well, this literary exercise requires for a dog. Hey, hey, King Henry, do you want to play the dog? (laughs) Yeah. Mind you, we've got, I was just thinking, we've got Exit Pursued by a Bear, and we know that was performed, so... Yes, exactly. Wait, do we actually know that he was pursued by a bear? (laughs) I don't know, Nyingma. But it was a play written intended for performance so either way this is very clearly a play which i i suspect was it was never a commercial performance put it that way it was Mm. like with closet dramas and with this kind of stuff it's this idea of um, written for a certain viewership perhaps they would because again why english because if it was just performed at courts which is where i was going with this or for the clergy then why didn't you just do it in latin or why didn't you just do it in yeah yeah, I was going to say, because I was thinking, oh, it sounds like it's kind of not like a party game, but mm. like a party. Oh, we're all in the medieval equivalent of the drawing room or whatever, and we're just going to do this little performance. But then, as you say, if it was in English, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and the other point is also they're all very kind of Italian names. Babio and Viola and Petulus and... Fodius and this kind of lot. Mm. They all kind of, they do scream of Commedia dell'arte, also in terms of the stock characters. So perhaps there's something going on mm. there. Um, and also there's a lot of references to in I know we're talking about sort of Terence but like Penelope and Bacchus that's a lot of Greek references so they're obviously kind of drawing on lots of of, d- of different elements and different things which are coming through yeah so it's this again that's the enlightenment this idea that they are all talking and looking and seeing all this kind of stuff you could almost I, I could very much imagine if Walter Mapp did write this play uh, that um, it's an absolute kind of um it's showing off. Hey, look, I know yeah. about Penelope. Do you get Ooh, my reference? You in the club? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I call all my characters Italian because we, we like Roman things here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That's the kind of plays which Terence basically, supposedly done by clerics, the most silly, ridiculous thing you can possibly see. And this isn't much. Yeah. I think that's my conclusion. I love that all the plays that we've been reading are just really random and really funny. The thing is, though, if you, for example, tried to explain the summary of Fleabag nowadays... I mean... <laughs> so, you know, so there's a girl who sleeps with everyone who moves and she slept with her best friend's sister 
uh, sorry, be- her best friend, boyfriend, sister, um, boyfriend, and and the friend then wanted to teach her a lesson. So she wanted to get half killed, but not fully killed, but got it wrong, and so therefore fully got killed. And she's in depression. And then uh, in her grief, what's it? Uh, Fleabag kills her pet guinea pig, and we never actually know what her name is apart from you know. Actually, if you try and just explain something on, but it is an interesting point of like we don't know how this was was mm. actually performed. We're just watching. We're just looking at the script and going, what the hell is yeah. going on? Okay, anyway, let's move on to the scoring. So we score every theatre style in four separate categories, sleight of hand, scandal, ripple or riot, and legacy. We each give a score out of 10 for each category, leading to a maximum total of 80. Then we decide whether the theatre style deserves to enter the esteemed House of Rebels. So the first category is sleight of hand. So this is stagecraft of the theatre style, props, tricks, trapdoors. So what kind of things did they use to move the story along, Mingma? Well, uh, there is a fair amount, thank goodness. Uh, So the first big thing which I've been saving for this is Terence masks, which is that the players would wear masks. There is actually kind of evidence that for these stories and for these plays, Mm -hmm. which they would do, they would have costumes in effect. And so there's actually a 12th century manuscript of comedies of Mm -hmm. Terence. So writing down all the comedies which they've been performing. And it has an illustration of a cabinet of Terence masks from the monastic library in St. Albans. Oh, wow. And are these masks sort of like the comedy tragedy masks that we think of? They are very much more characterful than that. So um, if you've ever done kind of work with masks, and I'm lucky I've done a couple of workshops on it, it's a very interesting thing of once you put the mask on, well, then how do you create Mm -hmm. the character? And so it's much more ornate than that. There are many more than just happy Mm -hmm. and sad you know, there's clearly like an old man mask and there's an angry mask and there's a... And I'm sure, actually, if I knew enough about this, mm. which I don't, we would have stock characters beginning to develop mm. here. That this is the mask of so-and-so, this is the mask of, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, in the way of... I keep saying Commedia dell'arte, but it does feel like that, mm. that there's very much a, you know... And how much improv is going on? Again, if someone's just narrating out front and anyone can be doing anything behind you. Is this mask tradition a deliberate call back to the past of performance and masks or is it more of a well, let's put some masks in do you know i i mean i can educate i, I can educationally mm. guess i think is probably the best way of saying it i would suggest that again there's a lot of them trying to work out how they did things how the romans did things how they you know how they okay. did x y and z and I'm sure that uh, this was them saying, well, this is how it's meant to be performed, therefore we're going to do it. But equally, I can see people trying anything to justify wearing more costumes yeah. and putting on more masks and, you know, more if you're going to have fun with this. Yeah. Uh, and also the fact that all of these, you know, this cabinet of masks is all in a monastery, monastic library in St. Albans. It's just, it's just great because it's like, you know, this is also, so we've talked about Babia, which was written by Walter Mapp or Walter Mapp or someone else or someone something like that. Most of these are adaptations of pagan playwrights mm. performed by monks in mm. Christianity. Again, this is the kind of thing where I said that, you know, we need to remember the, the kind of the secular thought, even if you are in a, in a monastery, there is very much a, a freedom of mm. thought going on. Um... Yeah, so clearly good, clean, monastic fun involving masks and paganism. Yes, suddenly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's allowed. Yes, so that's the first thing. The second big thing for sleight of hand for this is there are written sound effects and direct choreographical cues in the script. And I'm using Babio as the most example because it's the only one which we have in English, which is also makes it an outlier. The first lines of Babio are, remembering that Babio starts, he goes, Who's this? Whose voice is that? I spy a man. <laughs> you know, can you? How much signaling of what you need to be, you know, of what kind of like sound effects do you need or kind yeah. of stage directions? <laughs> Pretty obvious. Um, now I must be silent and repress my grief. I must imitate the crane and stretch my neck. <laughs> old, I mean, it's kind of low key bad writing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's. You know, it's good because it's telling exactly what everyone should do, but also... I mean, I do think this is a bit of a modernisation. It's not, you know, it won't actually be written absolutely like this, but... Uh, also melodrama, come on, (laughs) this is definitely a good... uh, And then, like, another example is... Here he comes! Alas, just a barking dog. So again, that is so clearly a, I've heard someone, and yet not, and yet have. It's just a barking dog. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah and so there's there's clear mm. kind of stuff of there were sound effects in this and there was absolutely an area and and there's also a moment in the play where Flodius and Babio have to be on stage at separate sides but unaware of each other so there's a moment when one's talking and then the other one's talking and mm. and it goes on like this so you could have a really athletic guy running between them to cut you know to do an oral narration kind of like I'm talking here and I'm turning I'm doing this and you could but mostly to me it sounds like two actors being directed they say one actor has to stand there, yeah. one actor has to stand there. Liv, doesn't that sound like a cocktail party? <laughs> cocktail party, um, for everyone who's listening, this is improv. Um, tricks, short mm. games, short form, all the rest of it. Uh, cocktail party is when you are uh, in groups, and normally it's two groups on either side of the stage, and you have to try and feel the moment when the other yes. person ebbs and you let your conversation come up, and when you kind of, and you aren't allowed to give yourself signs it has to yes. be about feeling yeah i was thinking party quirks that's the one i thought you were talking about but i was like i don't think it is that one but no cocktail yeah cocktail party is is also it's not so much a game as well it's also just used in good in good improv yes it does feel like cocktail party i agree um okay brill yes okay and the final thing on um sleight of hand is sets as we said before this is the first mm. time we really see it in the thing saying Babio is at his house Babio is outside or um it's called placing I guess that goes back to the question of the idea of a set like if it's just the narrator going we are in the bedroom like is that a set like as if you're setting the Im- in the image in the audience's mind or or even if it's got the actual props in the stick like you know the physical bed and chair and dressing table I mean was it definitely that they used props or was it more that they it was suggestion? Well, I think the, the whole castration thing definitely makes you feel like there has to have been yeah. some kind of props going on. There also seems to have been a definite difference in the scripts between a location like house or mansion or mm. locus place. And there's also a thing of the more neutral foreground of kind of platea, okay. meaning place. So a difference of locus and platea. So again, you can... To me, that sounds, again, Greek. So... Though we say this is um, Terence staging, this comes from the Roman, I can also see a yeah. massive Greek influence of the place where the chorus stands and mm. also where the action's happening. Setting, sleight of hand. I think that is a sleight of hand, even if the set itself isn't necessarily yeah. physical. Fair enough. Uh, but equally, the over-enthusiastic um, brother, the stepbrother of the Emperor Bruno, I can fully imagine just kind of grabbing every single thing from his room and put just going in, put it in. To... <laughs> I like that. Okay, yeah. so the score for sleight of hand then... So, so we've got um, Terence masks, sound effects, performing dogs, stage directions. We've got a fair bit. I'm not going to lie to you. The masks thing's quite intriguing. I think, again, I'm, just, I'm so relieved that this is actually a kind of style of theatre we recognise in some form today. Four. I think I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, I think even though it's quite exciting, I like the idea of mm. masks. I like the idea of a barking dog and sound effects, but I think it's not quite enough. I will also join you with a four. The second category, scandal then. So juicy gossip surrounding this mm. style. Was there any, Mima? Was there any scandalous behaviour? Well, again, how much do you know? Um, I mean, again, we've said before that that one of the reasons we know about this is because people are criticising it. So the Scarilia mm. and Mimica uh, of, the, of the Emperor Bruno's brother. Yeah. <laughs> taking part in these sportive mimic jests uh other point is uh monks are performing bawdy comedies of castrating men visually on stage <laughs> i mean it, that is some scandal yeah some pretty intense stuff it, it, yeah something <laughs> and uh the other main thing is we talk very much about the fact of that these often these are performed with one guy narrating and everyone else performing or it might be a couple or you know but in general there is one guy and then other people who don't really talk much and there is evidence and it's likely that some of these incredibly bawdy comedies would actually be performed in the pulpit while the mimes <laughs> danced around below <laughs> in a church Oh, so funny because I have such different associations with the church than all this stuff. It's suggesting what the church was like then. It's like, yeah, it's it's strange that the idea of the church from a like a lay person's point of view is has changed so much. Yeah, I, I've already said in the kind of mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon liturgical drama episode that um, I do have this real belief that throughout this time when you all think everyone's incredibly Christian, actually, I think most mm. of them were agnostic. And, you know, but the church was their community. It was their space where they went. And this kind of thing, I bet actually at their time, though for us, that's complete <laughs> scandal. Um, this this was absolutely normal because the church was mm. the community space. 
So if anyone was coming to perform, that would make complete sense. And actually, if you look at church design, the whole idea was that you have like the long nave, which was the uh, which was the everyday space where you'd have the market and where you would have X, Y, and Z. And then at the end, you have the sacred area, the, the dome, the kind of the place where the um, where the altar was. But remembering then that the nave inside the church, the nave was absolutely a community space where anything mm. could happen. It could have really the church could have really been anything. It could have been a town hall, and it probably would have mm. still been the same, so to speak. It, it was the town hall. I think that's a very good example. Like everything happened inside the church up until something like the 1880s. You know, there's a reason why it's still called the parish yeah. council, you know, especially in, in, you know, in little villages like mine. Um, <laughs> you know, the church was the kind of the, the legal entity. The, the priests were the most educated and were also quite often lawyers mm. and were this and that. But anyway, I think we decided ages ago that we were going to judge scandal mostly yeah. on today's standards. So, uh, bawdy comedies high. in the middle of the church from the pulpit. <laughs> okay, I, I, no, I've got one more thing for scandal before we completely finish, which is that there is record of mm. all this castration, all that of Babio, the exact we've been looking at, being performed by the choir boys at Lincoln Cathedral. <laughs> of course, there is. I'm no longer surprised, Ligma. Of course they got children performing affairs and castration and beating up people and yeah. falling in love with your stepdaughter. Like, what a wild ride was the medieval times. I'm not going to lie to you. I think it was wild. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the scandal score then, relatively high because this is quite scandalous for our time. I think eight. Whoa. <gasps> Bingma. Genie, <laughs> go on, bring it down. Genie, Mac Mingma, we've songs of praise. We gave zero point five. Do you? <laughs> do you really think this is 16, 16 times more scandalous? I mean, hold uh, hold on. What did we give for people having sex on stage? No, we. The reason why we brought scandal down for that one was because at the time it was a. Um, again we're back in romans people mm. um, that it was against the roman emperors if you did anything scandalous you were dead that's true i can't believe you're giving i am genuinely shocked maybe this is <laughs> this is such a departure from you i'm i'm worried about I you i think the new year has affected you <laughs> yeah i'm feeling anarchic what can i do no i think it's also just i'm i'm so desperate for doing something for scandal i think this is actually doing quite well okay i i i agree that this is scandalous but i i want more affairs and chaos okay so i'm gonna actually only give it a six um fair enough so moving Mm -hmm. on to ripple or riot so here we judge whether this style caused a ripple small or a riot big Mm -hmm. how socially controversial was its existence and content did it spark wider conversations well i think the very fact that it's being performed is an attempt to romanize the culture so that's interesting that's clearly a a social construct that they're going back to for them they're already these plays are a thousand years old Mm. let's just have that into cut into context we think of them as being old but bloody hell and so clearly this is part of the wider movement of new freedom of thought and looking at older religion, um, at older cultures and rediscovering it and rediscovering wisdom from that time and looking more critically at the way you viewed the world. Again, it's warmer, less wars. It's all this time for cultural and play. Uh, and so in that way, I think there's definitely a feeling of, um, of introducing something new to mm. society. Um, I'd also say Emperor Bruno's brother, I'm sure is doing something for the drama scene and that's definitely causing a ripple of some sort in the court. That's true, (laughs) that's true. That he's swabbing off. But it was very much socially accepted, wasn't it? It wasn't... If they're performed by the clergy and you've got the heavy influence of the church... Really don't know. It's one of those really irritating things of this kind of time that we have so few evidence, so few, yeah, primary sources. So, um, again, I suppose it would absolutely vary monastery to monastery Mm. or, you know... Uh, like Hrothvitha clearly had a matriarchal thing going on where everyone can do whatever the hell they wanted in a kind of great way yeah. when it comes to plays. Um, and clearly St Albans also was very happy and and Lincoln Cathedral to partake. And then, so that's clergy, but then Empress Bruno's brother is clearly at court doing it. And so is Walter Mapp in England. Mm. Uh, and so clearly it's more than just being in um, clergy. But also, again, the whole thing of Babio. Babio is written in English, even though English isn't the language of law or court at this mm. point. And clearly it wouldn't have been the only one in English. It's just the one that survives. So 
does that mean that it's performed at court but it also is performed amongst the working class as well yeah or is it um you know in which case is this a this is i think it's ripples there is evidence of ripples but there isn't it isn't like they're calling everyone to go to war i think is my feeling i mean i don't get the impression that this is particularly mainstream in terms of everyone in the village knows about it or yeah it's well then again perhaps they did Mm. and we just have no evidence for it but again we can't always base on no evidence i think there is a big point that there's at least one of them in english which survived to now so clearly it was it was going on in england away from the ruling class that there is one in english okay i think that's a good point i'm gonna give it a two for ripple or riot i'll give it a three my stomach well i'm back in line back in line get back <laughs> in line get rid of your eights get ridiculous no, yeah. no. give it what you want um so that takes us to a grand total of five for ripple all right so finally legacy uh how has the theater style influenced the future so this is the first scripted ask for an animal on stage in english which is a fun little is thing fun. Remembering that, I mean, again, animals on stage nowadays is absolutely not not a thing, yeah. particularly. Uh, but the performing dog would continue to be a complete staple of British theatrical history right through into the 19th century. No, I, I didn't know that. When you say performing dog, I only think of Legally Blonde the musical. <laughs> or Annie, actually. Annie, if you that's true. There. That's true, yeah. Um, so think mm. about, I mean, here's some examples um, of uh, musicals. You know, the kind of the, the acts of dogs and with this kind of idea um think toby and punch and judy there's always a dog toby mm-hmm. who comes in or crab in shakespeare's two gentlemen of verona another mm-hmm. dog and quite often the clown with the dog was a thing in a way yeah. you know in performance so this is clearly the start of something or it's it's the first evidence showing of something which had been developing that makes sense uh yes so animals in place it's starting here um Next thing is that, uh, and this is a really fun fact, actually, mm-hmm. which is there's clearly been an influence of stuff like Babio on 15th century dramatists and thereafter, including Two Noble Kingsmen, which is a play co-written by Shakespeare and is supposedly an adaptation of Babio oh. for the modern audience. Okay, that is really interesting. I mean, okay, I'm going to put it mm. out there. I don't know... Um, the two noble kingsmen that well it's a weird one okay. and it's also I mean there's a reason why it's not as well known as some of his others mm. and it's definite that he wrote some of it and then it goes to shit and that's written by someone else <laughs> but uh, again it shows just how important it was all the way through mm. but it isn't just that this is an undiscovered text which I've now brought out like you know <laughs> film of this for show it really was an influence then uh, another little legacy is there's, there's a likely link into stock characters later so Malcolm M. Brennan has suggested that Graccio from Wakefield's Masters Cain and Abel play, Flippity Gibbet or other vices from morality plays may owe something to lineage to this kind of style. Okay, we're going to talk about mystery plays and morality plays later in later episodes. Mm. Another thing actually is from miracle plays as well, which we're going to talk about yeah. at another point, which is that there's this juxtaposition of staging rather than just narrating scene by scene. Mm. So um, might have planted the, ju- the idea of something similar for miracle plays. So stuff like Herod's Palace in one place, Bethlehem in another. Mm. Okay. Uh, and the movement of this kind of stuff. And finally, just from those wonderful lines beforehand, whose voice is that? I spy a man! Melodrama, I mean, come on. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> very similar to the who's there at the beginning of Hamlet and I was like maybe that's a stretch that is a stretch love no. <laughs> but melodrama I mean yes it's melodramatic but does it directly influence who knows who knows, who knows? Um, okay so legacy I mean I guess then we're back to the problem of a modern audience trying to as in me trying to analyse because I think performing dog is that a big legacy? Is that a big deal to have a dog on stage? Mm. But then I guess if you say it was really popular, then who am I to judge, you know? Who are we really to judge? <laughs> I think, do you remember that there's that there's so much evidence, especially in Shakespeare's time, of his plays contemporaneously touring Europe whenever mm. plague hit? Uh, so, the, so the actors would disappear off to Amsterdam, would join up with X, Y, and Z, and would then travel down the Danube or travel city to city mm. playing. So they'd get away from plague. Which sounds like a great idea from where we're sitting right but now. But also potentially spreading um, the plague. So, 
also true. Uh, but point being that uh, when they're going down, you know, into Poland and this kind of stuff, and they're performing in English, why on earth would Poles watch? Well, one of the reasons is because they get all of the court costumes from the year before, so the Poles get a fashion show. It's another, and another reason is they have physical comedy or they have physical performances, stuff like dances, mm. sword fights, performing dogs. Mm. It's it's a way of get of like universal. It's a bit like farting humor is literally <laughs> universal everywhere. Yeah, there's a reason <laughs> Simon to... Cowell loves performing dogs so much. Actually, yeah, perhaps Simon Cowell and Britain's Got Talent has got a lot to owe to Babio. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps it does. Um, perhaps. Okay, so legacy. Then, what are you thinking? I think it's again the problem with as you said with Terence before mm. that clearly this this style had really clear legacy for at least 300 years yeah. actually no 500 years if we're going into Shakespeare and into kind of uh, music halls mm. and into this kind of stuff um, so for that reason I'm going to give it a 5 I think I'm going to join you and give it a 5 so we that takes us to 10 for Legacy so we are at a grand total of oh do you know what I mean I think this is actually going to be pretty high really 37 out of 80 yeah it is really good, actually. They're, all, they're also not... I was interested because you really have no idea as we're scoring it. You know, the scoring is not exactly <laughs> no. scientific. We ha- actually have no clue how this, how it all fits together. I think because this one's got some firsts in there and the masks and the dogs and the stage directions, I think that makes sense. So Mingma, the big, big question, mm. does it make it into the House of Revels? Um, alas, no, I do not think. Nah. Nah, <laughs> nah, you're done. Uh, I suppose because we booted Terence, uh, you can't exactly put the um, the slight second rater. Yeah, the poor <laughs> imitation of Terence. Can you imagine if Terence was listening to this? He'd be like, um, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have we actually even... I mean, that episode wasn't on Terence. No, we said Terence... We, we said we had a painting of him up in yeah in the yeah, House of Rebels, but, but nothing more. Oh, I still I feel sorry for storytelling. <laughs> it's stuck there. <laughs> it is stuck there for, for oh. a thousand years. It has met no one else in the alone house of revels. Well, but hopefully. maybe it'll be joined by someone else soon. Hopefully, who we'll see. knows? Who knows? <laughs> okay, that's it. We've just covered Terence staging. Perhaps not all of it, but as much as we can. If you enjoyed this episode, you can rate and review us, and press subscribe to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Have you got a nugget about Terence staging you'd like to share? We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch via social media. On Twitter and YouTube, we are House of Revels, and Instagram, we are House of Revels with underscores. Or you can be old school and drop us an email at houseofrevelspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening this week to us talk about Terence staging. And see you next time. See you next time. Bye. I can't believe I can't add four simple numbers up together. Why is 37? I don't know why I was panicking. <laughs> I was trying to add 14, 8, 5 and 10 and I was like, no, it's 39. Um, this is what happens when you stop doing maths age. <laughs>